Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with friend Mike Dempsey of Compound. Mike, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So, Mike, you joined Compound, what, two years ago? Three years ago? Three years ago, yeah. So you have a very interesting approach where you take a category you've been thinking about, write a definitive post about it, and invest in companies in that category. What would you edit to that that description? Yeah, I think it's I think it's uh, this continual loop of like read, write, or almost read, listen, write, talk, read, listen, write, talk, and this idea of... The guys from Multicoin Capital, uh, Tushar and Kyle, had this really interesting thing that they surfaced to me once, which is called Cunningham's Law. And it's that idea that if you share something with a strong opinion, someone will much more is much more likely to give you a, an opinion or actually respond to that if, yeah. if they think you're wrong, right? Yep. Especially on the internet. And so uh, I think a lot of that comes from uh, that law, which I actually never really knew the name of, but actually thought about. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's kind of either, either a definitive post, if you want to call it definitive, um, that's getting a lot of credit, uh, to, to these things I care about or, um, something that, you know, I, I spent a lot of time on a lot of thinking about. And at, at a certain point, I think that, you know, that I get more value from sharing that publicly and talking to more people about right. it than keeping it internally, where I think in, in venture, we continually deal with this, back and forth of trying to figure out like how much should I, should I be public about versus private. Right. And some people popped open the, the public side really quickly and really early on that helped their careers a lot. But now as more and more VCs kind of flood the internet with a bunch of different posts, it might be sometimes dominant strategy to actually just remain quiet and listen. Right. Yeah. I, I do the similar strategy, except I've only been thinking about it for 45 seconds and I tweet it. <laughs> yeah. I do that a lot too. <laughs> but I do get responses yeah. uh, as you. So why don't you trace a little bit of the sort of, journey you've gone through different categories what would you say uh if you were to go sort of chronologically um what are some categories you've been excited about we'll go deep into each one and what sort of threads do you think uh under underlie that like what has drawn you to these yeah i think a lot of it comes comes from so uh early on at uh cb insights when i was doing a lot of the data and research stuff i started to focus a lot on uh what we were calling like frontier tech and it was just like weird stuff uh across like robotics machine learning ar vr drone space and some other stuff. And I think I liked that because I, in that seat, you're in this really interesting position where you're like talking to startups, you're talking to VCs, you're talking to large corporates that are trying to like understand innovation. Yeah. And I saw that as kind of like a white space. A lot of people weren't talking about it, but seeing all these really cool companies and I'm a sci-fi nerd as well. So that helps. Um, and so I, I started learning more and more about um, robotics and machine learning specifically and spending a lot of time there. And I think a lot of that is actually just like cascaded forward. So yeah. A lot of it early on started with like just robots broadly. And so I spent a lot of time learning about what are like the stacks of robotics, what makes them move, what makes them work, how do they become more and more intelligent. Um, and this is probably around like 2013, 2014. Um, and then as you start to see like, okay, what are the actual applications of robotics? We saw drones being really cool. And you started to learn that like actually the hardware platform for drones weren't super interesting. DJI was taking a bunch of uh, market share there quickly. Um, there was all these interesting software layers. And then you saw the same with space where you saw a bunch of interesting software problems and all this kind of re, re, uh, kind of like culminated in deep learning being applied to images in some way. Yeah. Um, and so I started learning a lot about that. And one of the next interesting use cases within this robotic space was autonomous vehicles. Um, and I spent a ton of time there learning about what are the traditional technical approaches, what are the new technical approaches, and we can talk all about that stuff. And then as I started learning more and more about uh, these new technical approaches, you start learning more about kind of machine learning as a core technology. Yeah. And uh, specifically, I started spending a lot of time in unsupervised learning, or as now people call it, self-supervised learning, and that idea that you have to have less input as a human to the data sets and to the structuring of the models. And so that led to looking at like, what are all these interesting use cases that are these like generative adversarial networks and autoencoders are being applied to. One of them just happened to be animation and, and I guess like cartoons broadly. And that was because there's really interesting high quality data set. Yeah. And it's just kind of like a, it was an interesting use case for some of these creative things that you could actually see visually versus like a generating audio. And so that led to a deep dive in animation. And that's kind of where I've spent a lot of time uh, over the past, I guess we'll call it year and a half, two years. Um, yeah. But each of these things kind of spiral into the next. And because of that, also like investments kind of spiral into right. the next. And we talk a lot about like, uh, kind of this flywheel effect we have when we invest of here's a certain thing we care care about here's a certain thing we want to spend a lot of time on here are the communities we penetrate here are the posts we write people we talk to 
And then how does that like feed forward into the next investment? Um, so that's, you know, that's kind of like a high level view. Yeah. And there's like all these weird tangential things of just like you hang out around like artists who are also doing VR stuff and you start seeing avatars a lot. And you start yeah. thinking about like how avatars is going to live in our world and what does that mean for our identity? And then, you know, I'll write some weird posts about avatars. And so yep. there's, there's some weird traces that kind of go off path and aren't as clean aligned, but like women's health, like women's health. Yeah. Women's health is, is another one. Um, and women's health was like, yeah, it was, it was really bizarre. It, it came from uh, reading uh, more and more about kind of like the growing market around uh, fertility and the fertility practices at the time. And, and also just like the experience layer for uh, for women broadly uh, in the healthcare system. And there, I had a very strong view, actually, that like I thought there was really interesting play within fertility and there was really interesting play within um, kind of like a higher end service around egg freezing. and. Yeah actually had like that overall thesis shattered by the TIA founders, which um, I think we've talked about before, but yeah. And then that has kind of since spiraled into its own category of looking at like, what are the interesting things around, around like IVF or that's like embryo screening before, yeah. or uh, what about once you own the relationship with a woman and she already uh, moves past the family planning stage and you can move into menopause. And so we kind of look at that as like an uh, entire stack where right now we have two investments and we'll probably make, you know, one to two more over time. Cool. Let's. Um, it seems it all uh, it all started with robotics uh, and ML. L- let's start with robotics. You you written a bit about this, but h- how did you start to to make sense of, of what's going on? And yeah, I think a lot of it was like just having this in- really inter- you have this really interesting like reference from like pop culture stuff. Yeah. Right? Like everyone sees robots in like TV movies, yeah. etc. And so then you say, okay, what has happened so far? And at that that point, it was like Kiva Systems is the only thing that happened. Um, and for the listeners who aren't familiar, can you? Yeah, like uh, basically autonomous warehouse robot can move things around. Amazon acquired them. It's the largest acquisition in robotics history. Um, highly, highly strategic acquisition. Um, and you saw that basically these robots were um, super, super expensive. And they always have have been up until a few years ago. And what you start to see in robotics is like, okay, why? The, the sim- similar thing with these new industries, like why is now the right time to, to invest in them? And such a like cliche venture thing to say, but you saw a lot of like these like smartphone wars playing out of people basically pushing down the component costs that could create intelligent robotic systems. And also you saw kind of the software capabilities that could create things that can move around within our world and understand our world better. Um, and so I basically started looking at like, what are all the interesting things that humans do uh, or that humans don't want to do or that humans could do, but they could do better or underutilized for, or they have labor problems and like, how could we automate those? Um, and interestingly enough, like warehouse robotics has gotten most of the funding, most of the companies, um, because a lot of uh, those environments are like pretty structured and you can separate the robots and the humans and you have a very repeatable task that's being done. Uh, and the first major company was built in that space. And so that spawned a bunch of other companies that were kind of around that space. I've actually kind of punted on like warehouse robots broadly. What? Uh, there's a lot of companies that have been funded in the space. I think that it's like a super high value problem. Uh, more investors in, in a company called Asaro and they do kind of like e-com fulfillment and other stuff, but it's mostly just software layer stuff. And I think for me, I, I, I didn't really get to a point where I felt like there was like meaningful differentiation that I would be able to say, you know, we're now in year, uh, let's say six of the you know warehouse robot um, renaissance uh, or revolution revolution and you know this is the company that's going to rise across all the other ones that have already raised money already have contracts already have pilots etc and, and are growing um, and so because of that uh, because you know we're a small firm and each of the partners in our firm focus on specific areas I kind of have to time yield based on like where I want to go deep and uh, where I want to actually have what I believe is like an outsized understanding yeah. And so where did you determine that would be with him? Yeah. So I, I basically started looking at a bunch of different areas. And one of the areas I spent a lot of time on was food. Um, and food was because uh, largely out of kind of out of passion, but also I generally believe that like robots are going to increasingly uh, interface with humans in an interesting way and, and or cause like human staples to be uh, more profitable or um, I guess like more consistent. Uh I grew up in the food industry. My dad uh, runs large-scale operations for multiple restaurant groups. He's done that forever. My sister is a chef. My mom does licensing for restaurants. And, like, the one thing my dad always says is, like, restaurants are terrible business. And, like, they are just, like, really narrow margin, totally just brutal from a labor perspective, brutal from a bunch of different perspectives. And so I, I had this really interesting – or this really kind of clear view of, like, I think robots within restaurants is going to be – um, kind of like a, a massive business that can be built and, and that can be built in, in two ways. And there's a bunch of companies that are building in a way of how do we help restaurant operators, owners, uh, achieve better scale. Um, and, or the other one is how do we just build a better restaurant? Yeah. Um, building it within robotics, what I've, I've learned over the years is, 
Uh, it's really easy to get pilots. It's really hard to get like recurring yeah. revenue and scaled revenue um, because everyone wants to try a robot. Everyone like wants to be the innovative company, but like very few want to like actually take a risk of like potentially destroying their whole business because of someone else's robot. Right. Uh, and so because of that, I just tech, like, often just favor full stack robotics companies and this idea of we're selling a service that is just has dominant economics, dominant scale, dominant volume, whatever it is, dominant intelligence, dominant new UI UX. But we're doing it with robots. We're not like a pure play robotics company. Um, and I think like, you know, Keith Roboy always talks about that, like these full stack startups, right? Um, within robots, I think that that's something that like, as you see more and more companies start off with really interesting pilots and then kind of like just stay there for two to three years and, yeah. and you know, five to $10 million of capital, um, specifically as a smaller fund, like that's terrifying to me. Yeah. What are examples of full stack robotic companies or even spaces where they're, they're doing well? Yeah. So, I mean, I think, I think that there, there have been a lot of, uh, a lot of like companies that are, are kind of getting going at providing a, a specific service. I think like the, the one that we're, we're investors in is a company called Ono and Ono basically made the, made a view of like, we want to build mobile restaurants, um, and we want to build modular restaurants. Um, and so they're launching in LA soon, um, within the food space. I think like creator is another pretty interesting example where they say, you know, we want to build a, a brand. And I think that all the, all the people within food that have gone full stack have realized that like, the importance of food is very closely tied to brand. Yep. I think I think within like other categories, we've seen uh, there's a company um, in Brooklyn called Toggle, and they do like a rebar, um, and like that was really interesting because selling like a robot to like a rebar manufacturing company is going to be like incredibly difficult. Yeah. And they had a really interesting view of just like no, like let's just do that. Like, well, people will come to us, we'll have a backlog and of customers, and we'll just solve the smaller problems over time and hopefully we can automate more and more and more of that process yep. and our economics will become increasingly better and potentially our throughput will be better. Yeah. Um, and now we're starting to see companies that are even trying to take off of like an entire industry and just say, we're going to automate software side and hardware side and um, be kind of like the, the automated X, Y, Z. Did you um, look at construction robotics? We did. Yeah. Um, there? I thought construction robotics were really interesting. I think that, the, the thing that I thought a lot about with construction robotics, like how do you get all of these different um, stakeholders to like basically have one point of person who takes responsibility over the robot. Yeah. Um, that's the thing that I've continually struggled with is like, you know, if you have a general contractor, but then you have all these different subgroups, um, how do you make sure that like if the general contractor is essentially saying like all these different subgroups are responsible for all these different things within the construction site, where does the robot fit within that? So I think you have to be like very narrow within that so that the, the, whatever that group is, um, within the construction process basically says like, cool, we want to use this because it makes our narrow use case better. Not like, uh, I think like if, you know, there, there've been different companies who want to tackle kind of larger chunks of the construction process. And I think once you cross over from like one type of stakeholder to another, it becomes really difficult to sell, uh, to them and, and honestly get them to just use the robot. And I think that's where you can get into the like false pilot phase where people are like, yeah, we have it on the site and like we're paying for it. And then you actually go and it's a bunch of humans just kind of like pushing the robot to the side and doing their work as normal. Yeah. What are other industries or applications that, that you looked at and either find curious and excited to look more or said, that's not for me? Like within robotics? Yeah. Oh, uh, I think like the uh, like retail space is really interesting. Yeah. Um, so we looked at like front of the house retail and back of the house. Like how do you move things from the back of the house uh, into like stocking or some of like the retail analytics stuff? Um, I think that eventually like if you if you think about putting a robot into a retail location and we can use something like Target for an example, you have these things where you basically have like a bunch of workers that have to move a bunch of stuff around um, and because they have to move a bunch of stuff around, they have to understand where things are within the store, yeah. um, both on the front and the back end. And uh, eventually you're also going to have these things moving around that are going to be seeing patrons or customers. Right. And so like my ultimate view is kind of like, these things that are like back of the house or front of their house robots start to actually just become like both of those things and merge yeah. into two. Um, I think that the technical complexity of crossing over into something that interfaces with humans is, is very high and the bar is very high for that. And so we haven't seen as many companies kind of aimed at doing that, that uh, also try and do like the other hard part of like moving things around. Yeah. Um, but I think if you truly want to say like, Someone, I think it was Dan Steer, who's like early Willow Garage, he has a company called Abundant Robotics, it's Apple Picking Robot. He once said like, you know, all the robots we build are really cool, but it turns out like five finger robots are pretty good at most things and like five finger robots being humans. Yeah. And so like, I think that's the, uh, that's like the bar you're going up against, especially in some areas where human labor is like 
moderately negligible to some right. of these larger organizations. Um, and that's kind of a sad thing to say. But on the other hand, you also have like other areas of the world where human labor is like a massive problem. And yeah. because of that, like maybe the bar is a little lower. Um, but honestly, I haven't spent as much time in some of the more like developing nations that would have that view because it's just not where we invest. Did you look at all in ag tech uh, and robotics? Yeah. Yeah. Looked at uh, a bunch of the different types of uh, like apple picking robots, strawberry picking yeah. robots, stuff like that. Super interesting. Um, I think that that's like an industry that is like clearly going to need that because yeah. of all the labor dynamics at play. Um, the thing that I generally came across with is with certain industries is, uh, you know, what is like the, what is like, again, the like willingness to spend on like the farmer side? Right. Um, and how does that play into like some of the government subsidies that some of these farmers achieve? I think that what's really interesting is like, I don't, I don't know anyone that's doing this, but at some point, uh, there, there's an interesting play of like, you just, you know, went into that business and again, tried to build a full stack company there and like own yeah. the farm and the food distributor. Um, I know that there is like one company that has a kind of view on doing that, but with the end product being a food service play. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, I think it's really interesting. We just haven't made an investment in this space yet. Yeah. I've seen what other robotics companies I've seen people who are trying to do, I've seen someone who's trying to do like a uh, manicure. Ro- yeah, robotics. Yeah. Um, someone, uh, robotics to like take care of an old person, of old, yep. old people, older people. Yep. Tattoo um, robots. Yeah. That's an interesting yeah. one. Uh, <laughs> I'm trying, yeah. Any, like some of the social robots, like the Jibo yeah. power down videos, like one of the saddest things I've ever yeah. seen. <laughs> oh my God. Um, yeah. That stuff's super interesting. Like the yeah. in-home robot stuff is like so interesting. Uh, it's just such a technical problem. And right now, like Amazon and Google are just taking a view of let's just park this thing yeah. in the house and, yeah, someday, like, that's that's probably, I don't know, a fund or two from now. I want to definitely have, like, an in-home robot. Investment. Yeah. ML, uh, you, you went deep there. How did you sort of make sense of it, and how did that um, lead to some of these other interests? Yeah. I think making sense of it is, like, you start just by trolling, like, Archive and uh, R slash Machine Learning and, like, these communities and talking to operators. And so, like, a lot of it came from uh, two specific early friends who were in the self-driving space. Yeah. and they both were like deep learning engineers. Right. And, and what do you think is underappreciated or under un, mis, uh, misunderstood uh, about the space from a high level? How few companies actually use machine learning in production mm-hmm. and uh, how difficult um, a lot of the things that we see in like cool, you know, website articles and stuff like machine learning just yeah. did this uh, actually are to replicate. And I think that that's like, that's getting more and more play specifically within the academic community. But like, it has been. It is remarkable how if you try and replicate some of the things that you see in papers, um, even with the, the data set, the, the exact same data set, you're either looking at sometimes throwing hundreds of thousands of dollars of compute, or right. it's just impossible to, to do. Um, yeah, and that's like a big kind of hot button within like the academic community is like how can we make these things more reproducible and more uh, able to actually be like like properly peer reviewed in some way. Yeah. Um, and there's just so many more papers now and so many different people publishing stuff that, uh, it becomes pretty hard, but yeah, a lot of it just for, for me, learning just came from reading papers and continually saying, okay, like I kind of understand this point. I kind of understand this point. And as you read more and more papers, you start to get really good at reading them. But then also you start to see like, okay, like this looks like it's progressing in an interesting way or like, Oh, this is kind of cool that people are thinking about, you know, using, uh, you know, unsupervised learning for anime or losing, using, uh, simulation to train computer vision models or all these different types of, uh, individual things that because the academic communities of the machine learning are also aware of what everyone is doing at all the right. time. Um, you see them all like kind of one upping, one upping each other. Uh, and yeah, like I, I increasingly have a view that <clears throat> like if your company is built on the premise that like your algorithms are best, you probably aren't going to survive. Right. Uh, and then there's like people talk about like, you know, data network effects and the idea of like data modes, which maybe, um, but that's, yeah, it's, it's definitely a space that like you have to spend a lot of time talking to people who are actually operating because there's so many false positives that you can, if you just read. Right. And, uh, how did you develop a thesis around self-driving cars? Uh, and, and what is it? Yeah. So basically uh, I met this guy who, uh, his name was Daniel Gruber. Daniel was one of the first, um, kind of like hardware engineers on the 510 systems team that went and became Waymo. And I met him through a friend. Um, and you, you spend enough time with him and you spend enough time with some of the people he was working with at the time. And you start to learn about like these stories of like these teams figuring out like, wow, we did this way easier. Like we crossed the Golden Gate Bridge like way easier than we thought. This was so much easier. And that team thought like they were going to have self-driving solved in like three years after that. Um, 
And then each time they hit these like local maximums of like, oh, wow, we totally didn't expect this to cap out the way it did. Uh, and then with like deep learning, you started to see, okay, like perception is actually significantly easier, but you still have all of these rules you have to write. And like the, the most broken thing to me and the thing like crystallize it the most, which is a very simplistic way to look at this. And we'll go into more of the deeper way, but is like when I drop in a city or when you drop into a city, if you can drive in New York, like you can, you might be a little scared, but like you can drive in San Francisco, you can drive in LA, you can drive all these things. You drop a self-driving car there and like that thing's not going to have a very easy time. And so we started spending time with all these teams, we know all these companies and you look at the birth of that industry and it all basically comes from one place, which is like 2007 DARPA challenge. And a lot of those people all kind of fractured around like Waymo, Tesla, Cruz, um, and now they have fractured into other companies like Aurora, et cetera. And they have this approach that is basically cobbling together multiple parts of the stack, whether that's perception, seeing the world, um, path planning, controls, et cetera. And um, that will get you to a certain point. Uh, and I think that a company like Waymo is going to be able to get a car to drive itself in a city that they have heavily mapped on some period of time. I think there are other companies that won't, but that that company specifically. And so we start saying, okay, if you were to build a self-driving car today, uh, how would you think about that? What would be like the first principles? And our general view was it would take a significantly heavier machine learning approach. It would take actually like an intelligence approach. Um, and this idea of understanding what are the incentives and what are the, of all the agents in the world, like what is it that they are trying to accomplish in a car? And the thesis basically boiled down to um, that, which is, you know, that these, these more uh, intelligence heavy, machine learning heavy, and in the case of the company we invested in, end-to-end approach uh, would be the type of thing that would scale, maybe not to like five cities first, but to what we believe is like a hundred cities where like anywhere you land at any point, any car can get in and go and drive, let's just say like 99.9% of the time. Like I'm, I'm okay with that. Um, and so that was our thesis. Uh, and we invested in this company called Wave and Wave basically came from, I met, um, I read a paper by this guy named Alex Kendall back in 2015. And Alex had written this paper called Segnet and it was basically about like state-of-the-art computer vision. And I emailed him and said, hey, this is really cool. If you ever think about starting a company, let me know. And Alex was like, yeah, I'm just like trying to finish my PhD, thanks. <laughs> like, why are you emailing me like random VC dude? Uh, <laughs> And two and a half years later, uh, one of my friends said, hey, I met this really interesting guy, Alex Kendall. He's from University of Cambridge. He's starting his company. Um, you should talk to him. Like, he has a really different approach. Uh, and I kind of just bumped our email thread from two and a half years prior. And I was like, I guess you started a company. <laughs> uh, so we ended up leading the scene around investing in them. And, and uh, their general view is an end-to-end approach, very intelligence-heavy, with deep reinforcement learning, um, and doing a lot of things that just weren't possible five years ago when you started doing this or 10 years ago. And because of all of the technical debt that all these other companies built up, like it's pretty impossible for them to change their path at this point. They have little skunk work teams within them. Um, and so my view is if a startup is going to win this space and it is a massive space that has massive upside, like this is the co- company that's going to do it. Whether or not they do that, like that is unclear. That's kind of informed a lot of my view on that space. Are there other elements within the stack or within uh, within the space that uh, – or other types of companies that, that intrigued you or have you said, no, this is the only thing? There have been like ancillary uh, parts of the stack. Like yeah. there's, there's, there's a company that was doing like understanding of pedestrian intent. That yeah. was really interesting. Um, a lot of, The way a lot of these companies look at this is like – Basically, they're like path planning forward based off of speed. Like, where's the place you're going to go? But, you know, I'm looking down at my phone and walking kind of slowly and like looking to the left to like try and cross, but I'm walking in one direction. You can infer a little bit differently how I'm going to move versus um, if I'm just standing there and like, you know, staring at a wall. Um, And so there's all these interesting things you can do around uh, understanding intent of of pedestrians, which I was really interesting. The other one that I spent a ton of time in uh, was simulation. Basically, when you start to spend more and more time with people in the space, you start to see data is a massive problem. Google and Waymo spends a bunch of time driving cars around. Tesla has their cameras on every car. They collect debatable amounts of data, but data at certain points. Um, and so you have this data mode problem and you have this edge case problem. And so uh, what a lot of the teams are doing is basically dropping their cars in video games, driving them around, uh, and being able to generate new worlds to test out different edge cases. So we spent a bunch of time in that space and... Um, basically wrote this kind of post around like, how would you, what is like the state of simulation and self-driving cars? Essentially screaming out to the world, like, Hey, if you were building this, like, please come talk to me because like, I want to find a company to back in this space. Uh, what ended up happening was my view is like autonomous vehicles is the awesome way to go. This is like Zooks has an in-house team that does this. Waymo has an in-house team, but there are going to be a lot of companies that need this. And then you can expand into other areas. Um, I met 
these two people, uh, Dale Kim and, and Paul Walbarski, um, who are building a company called AI Reverie. And they actually came to me and they said, simulation is super interesting and like autonomous vehicles are really interesting. A lot of companies in-house, theoretically, it could be a winner-take-all market, duopolistic market, which shrinks a lot of like the earning potential of the company supplying that uh, software to them. But there's a bunch of other use cases that computer vision models need data for, and also like pretty bizarre ones, um, whether that's from like government use cases to humanitarian use cases to sports teams to whatever. Um, and they basically said, we're building that. And we have like real revenue and we have customers and like this isn't a, you know, multi-year, like let's hope this plays out with this really different, difficult technical problem. It's like we can provide infinite amounts of data and infinite amount of worlds and very high diversity of data, which is incredibly important to lots of different use cases. And we do it in a super, super scalable way. Um, and so we invested in that company and have invested multiple times in the company now. Yeah. Well, how do you think about horizontal companies, whether it's uh, for autonomy or even just horizontal ML company or what sort of frameworks do you have for thinking about horizontal? Yeah. I think increasingly like anything that is horizontal where it's like good enough that on the, on like the consumer interfacing side, um, like, good enough that people won't notice, you know, elite versus pretty good. Um, I kind of am punting to the big companies. Like I yeah. think it's going to be very hard to do a lot of things in a horizontal way that better than Google, Facebook, et cetera. Google has this really interesting paper, um, from 2016 called, uh, one model to learn them all. Basically yeah. it was this research paper that basically they were making a point and almost and some people in machine learning community say that they were trying to like, uh, kind of flex a little bit by saying like, if you throw enough data and enough computer to problem, like we, like a model can solve that. Yeah. And like who has more data and more compute than Google? Like arguably no one. And so they, they basically wrote this paper saying like deep learning is, is, is a direct function of this. Um, and so I think for us, and, and this is kind of like now become, I think the standard uh, view on like machine learning companies, you have to go vertical. You have to have a interesting understanding of like, what is the type of data that you're going to get that other people aren't going to have? Or is there honestly like just a way in which you can build increasing with some of these companies that have technologies that are like kind of commoditizing at a faster rate than they thought, what is like the UI and UX that you can build that is just significantly better and easier to work for because of that initial point of like, there aren't that many companies that use machine learning in production. That then means like the people you're selling to probably aren't like in most cases, they're not at the sophistication level that autonomous vehicle engineers are on the machine learning side. So like, how do you abstract away some of that and make it really easy for um, people to use your product? Or if you're providing kind of a vertical use case, um, you know, make it easy for them to customize your product in some way for, for them. Um, yeah. And so I think that that's, that's kind of how we look at it. But there are a lot of areas within uh, ML that I think I have opted not to go as deep on because I think, like, it's been really hard to grasp differentiation. Um, yeah. Like, what, what, what's an example? Or what are some yeah, I think, like, uh, like radiology is, like, a perfect yeah. example for me. Um, there's probably, like, over the past two years, I at least 10 different companies in that space. And, like, it yeah. makes total sense, right? Like... How do you feed in enough data, uh, imagery data to detect certain patterns within those images? Um, and there's like an insane amount of super smart people working at those companies and like building those companies. And it got to a point where I, that scares me the most because one, like I was having a difficult time grasping like long-term moats. Two, I, there's a lot of like weird regulatory issues there and not regulatory issues in the sense of like, well, like how are you going to get data of people that like want to give it up, whatever, but more of like, as my partner, Josh, who spends a lot of time in regulated industries always talks about within healthcare is like, there are just sometimes buying decisions that happen like because they happen. And like, that is the type of stuff that as someone whose entire kind of investment framework is built around this idea of like understanding why things are the way they are yeah. and how do they be better? Like that terrifies me. And that is what we're an area in which I then don't feel like I actually have alpha and specifically within like that type of healthcare and those types of decisions um, becomes very difficult to kind of understand those things. And kind of goes back to the robotics thing, right? It's like sometimes people just don't buy robots because like they're using their friend to do this right. thing or their friend's company. And like, that's, it's like, I want to continually, you know, just erode that and own that entire value prop and capture all the value instead of a, a sliver or trying to increase margin for people. Um, so yeah, I don't know. That's one of the examples. How have you thought about data labeling or image recognition? Or yeah, uh, we have an investment in uh, kind of like data labeling space. Um, the company called Crowd AI. I think that that's that's something that uh, is is increasingly increasingly needed as more and more companies actually start to move ML into production because yeah. now people are starting to understand like the actual how how important having clean or good data is. And then we also have another investment in a company we haven't announced yet that is trying to understand how do you help companies filter out data yeah. and filter out training data that is invaluable to them. And I think that has a lot of really interesting implications, both on as companies with larger and larger basically data bills start to realize like, oh my God, it's costing us 50, 100, 
$200 million on the large end um, per year to label all this data we're getting and like, you know, 50% of it's reductive, useful, useless, whatever. Um, Or there's a second thing, which is really interesting is like all these people now similar to crypto are like the uh, environmental impact of training all these models is like really bad. And so there are these large companies that are using just like a green initiative to say like, we're going to do less on training, et cetera. Um, So that's like, I think both of those markets are really interesting. I think that the data labeling market is going to, kind of consolidate, but consolidate in a way that companies consolidate, but revenue overall of the market's going to grow pretty substantially over the next like five to 10 years. Yeah. I, I do crowd AI as an angel as well. Mm-hmm. And also a uh, scale uh, mm-hmm. AI. How have you thought about ML as it relates to sort of uh, like voice uh, relate the sales or customer, mm-hmm. customer success or you know, all these companies that are going after yeah. calls? Call yeah. Yeah. Call um, we're investors in DeepGram. Uh, DeepGram's end-to-end learning uh, on audio. I do to do transcription uh, for them. Like the, the key thing, and I think this is kind of goes back to the original thing is like that horizontal thing where it's like, you know, 85% good enough for a lot of use cases is fine. And, and again, like I'll toss that to Google and, and Facebook and Amazon. Um, these more specific things where like, if you mess up a few keywords, it's like not fine and totally yeah. ruins the data set is where I think you see vertical companies within voice be really useful. And so that's, that's where like, I think like there are opportunities for more and more specialized data sets, more and more ways in which, you as a customer are basically training your own custom model so that you're not relying on like the hive mind to figure out everything that the relationships between all the words or things like that. And on the voice side, like I think like natural language uh, interactions are um, again, like on the consumer side, pretty good from the horizontal players. I haven't seen, I haven't seen anything where it's consumer facing that I don't have faith that the large companies are going to own at some point, but what about enterprise call data with sales or, yeah, the sales stuff, um, I think makes a lot of sense if, if you can start to say, like, if, if, you know, if X percent of a user base is going to have the same types of yeah. questions over and over again, how do we automate that? How do we push that through uh, a workflow that even with like more traditional, like essentially like simple algorithms, which are these like workflows and rules-based approaches, like I think you can even do it that way. Yeah. Obviously, deep learning is better at that, but you don't necessarily have the same data burden. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. I think a lot of it, a lot of it for me comes down to uh, increasingly like, where do I get like the most uh, personal passion on investments yeah. at least. And for some of the areas uh, I just like, I'm not as personally passionate about it. And so because of that, I don't spend as much time there. Yeah. So as a nice segue uh, animation, what, yeah. uh, what sort of started your interest there and, and take us through that journey? Yeah. So I've been like a huge animation nerd growing up for a while. Uh, I have like a Disney collection, like a Mickey mouse collection, all these different things in my rooms at home, but probably like, yeah, a couple of years ago. So uh, I guess like in, in uh, 2014, Ian Goodfellow wrote paper generative adversarial networks, basically started uh, with what is now GANs. Um, and it basically showed how do you uh, generate things with a kind of cat and mouse game between two models. And a lot of what people started to push that on was uh, animation and or generating new types of faces and things like that we've seen. What more and more people started to do with that and other computer vision techniques was saying, you know, how do we automate um, these structured data sets that have a lot of data uh, around um, animated properties? A lot of it was anime. And I started to see that more and more. And I just kind of like thought it was really cool to say, you know, creatives have all these bottlenecks. How do you give them more scale over time? In that time, uh, a friend of mine, um, Dylan Flynn, was uh, at CAA. And Dylan was basically thinking through a lot of the kind of endemic things that CAA and agencies are going through and kind of what are the existential threats that they have over time surrounding IP specifically. Um, and we've seen like how powerful IP is now with like Marvel and things like that. And Dylan came to me and, and basically had a very clear idea for what he wanted to build in a storytelling company. Um, and I won't go too in depth into what that is, but um, he wanted to tell stories um, through animated content. And his partner, Corey was a, uh, someone who has built a bunch of different TV shows on um, Netflix and much other stuff. He's responsible for BoJack Horseman, Robot Chicken, and all sorts of stuff. And he's kind of a, a legend in the animation space. And they very clearly understood things that I don't understand, which is like basically everything about media. As I talked more and more to Dylan, I kind of said, have you ever like heard of like GANs or anything like that? And Dylan was like, oh, yeah, like I, I've read about it. I don't really know. And so we started sitting down more and more and saying, what are the ways in which we can tell stories and but build a company that is um, in the long run – uh, storytelling company, but uh, in the short run, um, something that is more uh, has a bit of a moat and can think through how do we achieve scale and how do we do it in a really interesting way that allows us to give scale to all of our creators, both on the animation side, illustration side, a bunch of other stuff. And so uh, we've done that. We incubated the company, funded it. Uh, Dylan is the CEO. Corey is, is kind of the other co-founder and chairman. 
that kind of has just spiraled into like thinking through all of these different problem sets because again, our view is like build being a full stack company versus providing a single piece of software. Yeah. What's going to determine who's going to win in that space? Like what, what core skill set is needed and what is sort of the approach there? I think like, honestly, like in, in any of this stuff, it comes down to like storytelling. No yeah. matter what, like people don't care. And so just getting the right character basically. Yeah. Getting the right character, telling the right stories. There are really interesting things you can do on the scale side. If you can create characters at a faster rate than anyone, if yeah. you can tell stories at a faster rate than anyone at a higher fidelity. Um, and there's like ancillary companies now that are starting to help enable that, like unreal and unity and stuff like that. Um, but if you look at like the history of Pixar, it's like Pixar built Presto, they built Renderman, and they basically figured out how to build 3d animation better and faster than anyone. Um, arguably like just period for anyone. And then that started to commoditize a little bit and they said, okay, cool. We're going to like open source render man. We'll give it away. Cause that'll help the industry more. I'll help people understand our stack better, but like we're still going to keep presto in house. And because we keep presto in house, what it allows them to do is from film one to film four, like toy story or Ralph breaks the internet or any of these other things as they move, these assets are like custom built in their pipeline. And so they can move them in a way uh, and upgrade them in a way and have learnings from them in a way that no other company that is not vertically integrated on the software side can. And they also can have a very unique look because they're not using the same tooling that everyone else is using. And I think that that kind of goes back to like why people watched or loved Disney 2D animation back in the day. It was like, it had a very like fanciful feel to their illustration and animation style. And other people just like didn't ever grasp that in the same way. And I don't think intuitively a lot of people think like, Pixar, like the way it looks versus like the way like a Sony picture or like imagination, imaginary picture looks is like the thing I love. But like there is a certain aesthetic you see. And then if you look at a bunch of other 3D animated movies that are being pumped out by less well-funded or smaller studios, there's an aesthetic that is a lot more similar. Yeah. And I think that that idea of being able to keep that tooling in house and the idea that like their main ethos of Pixar at least is like when they build a movie, they have goals for that film and for that animation that they are going to solve by technology they have not yet built. But they know that because they are working on their own pipeline and honestly because they've been doing this now for like almost two decades, they're going to figure that out. Um, And I think that that is really powerful when it comes to the creation process and actually just continually being ahead of people on the quality of your product. In the end though, like the thing that everyone talks about with Pixar is like the brain trust and like that is the thing that like they are amazing storytellers and they're amazing at creating IP. The issue with Pixar is and any of these companies is like they go down in a hole for three to five years, spend a hundred, two hundred million dollars, and like hope to God that it works. Yeah. Um, I think with some of the things we do around scale, we can do that in a much faster way. Right. And you've been following digital celebrities for, for quite some time. So talk a little bit about what's happened in the last few years with Lola Michaela and, and where that's going. <clears throat> yeah. Um, I think like in general, we saw uh, uh, years ago the explosion of like gorillas and all this other stuff. Um, and for listeners who aren't familiar with it, yeah, so yeah, we had we had Gorillaz, which is like a animated band, essentially. Um, we had Hatsune Miku, which is a uh, performer from Asia that was created by uh, a software company. Um, and then kind of basically Hatsune Miku's main view was that we're going to let people push UGC into this character. She becomes what everyone is. She is she is the audience. There's not a Hatsune Miku that is one person, so she means something to everyone. Um, and then we had kind of the next iteration of that, which comes within Michaela and a bunch of other different accounts. And I think Michaela is the one that gets the most kind of buzz because we're in Silicon Valley and she's funded by Sequoia and there's all these amazing things and the quality is really good and that company is amazing at telling stories. Um, and with that came like what I have tracked now to like over 250 different characters that's fond. Wow. Um, and I think that's people under, started to understand what is the tech stack for that. And they use like Daz and they can use uh, Unity and other types of 3D modeling tools. And they started to understand like what are the ways they can like kind of hack it um, and make it a little easier to produce. And basically these things have exploded uh, in certain ways, but they um, have exploded on kind of two vectors. The first being, um, I don't know exactly what this is, but this is different. It's cool. It's like interesting. Yeah. The second being... Uh, They'll run out at some point, right? Yeah. And then, yeah. And the, and the second being like, yeah, this is like, this is different and interesting and like a, just a different way to tell a story. My main view on all of this is like the rate at which these things decay or the novelty factor of these things decay is significantly increasing as they get more and more exposure. Yeah. And I think early on the company behind Michaela capitalized on the mysteriousness of the characters by creating the character universe and creating some controversies in it within it. Um, I think very quickly they kind of probably realized, and I don't know this, but like, they realize like we might as well shoot our shot now because like this isn't going to be compelling in five to six months from now once we have a ton of copycat people that basically also like degrade the their quality right like they have 
one of the highest quality products in the market. But then you see a bunch of things that to an average consumer might look like kind of similar. Um, and it's like, okay, oh, it's another one. And then you have like death by association in some ways. Um, and so what I'm kind of looking for is like, what is the thing that pushes the next bound? And if you look at the, you can track all the following follower metrics for all these characters. And I, I built a scraper. There's a website that publishes all our stuff called dailymirage.co that I built. And it basically just publishes all our posts. But you can see a lot of the followers started to cap out because like, one of the main things that's really interesting about animation, um, and this is from a different post I read, but the the person that wrote this said basically like watching a live action film is you're watching someone else's story. Um, watching like animation is like you feel like you're in the story mm. because you're kind of disassociating yourself with like this thing that could be you but isn't, and that photorealism makes that bar like pretty high, wow. and that's what like the 3D side does. Um, I think like with with animation you you kind of don't have to worry about this idea of like trying to be real. You have this upper bound of creativity that is, is, is unbounded. And I, I think that that's really interesting in the sense of like, how do you go uh, and tell stories that um, there's a reason why these things aren't real. Right. Yeah. And if, if the thing's not real, but it's meant to be real, it's like, why is that better than following Kim Kardashian yeah. or Rihanna or something like that? And so I always worry about the upper bounds of a lot of these things. Yeah. And so for, for companies like, well, we also haven't talked about Super Plastic. Yeah. Did you look at Super... Or what do you think about Super Plastic? Yeah. I think Super Plastic is super interesting. Uh, I was like a huge Kid Robot fan growing yeah. up. Yeah. Wow. Um, that was like... Yeah. Like when I was like trying to be like a skater and like really into like that whole <laughs> culture, I like loved Kid Robot. Wow. Um, I think that's really interesting in the sense of like how do you think about like monetizing IP but also doing it on like the vector of scarcity, which is yeah. what that company seems to have pushed a lot more towards. Like every time I get an email, it seems like it's like, this is a new toy that's dropping. There's only like 300 of them. Yeah. Um, I think that's a really interesting experiment. Um, I haven't seen as much content from that company. And I think that that's like, if you can build enough of an install base by selling goods, one, you have like a real business that makes money and that's always a good thing. Um, but then I can see how you would then flip that and turn that into like a content machine. Yep. Um, but I, yeah, I'm not sure exactly how it's going yep. to play out. Is this type of thing where broad super plastic are effectively building sort of the next CAA or is it, you know, there's also these types of things that says, Hey, we're going to give every person will get their own little Michaela. Like how how do you think about that? I think it's, I think go either way. I think you can either build CAA. I think it's actually more so though, actually like a, um, like there, I think the comp they use is like Marvel, right? Like I think that's actually what it is because broad isn't like, they're sure they're like managing Michaela or whatever, but it's really like telling a story. Whether they tell that story through the lens of selling, you know, Michaela's likeness to Samsung or whatever right. they've been doing is, is one thing. But until they start to think about how do they, uh, if they want to even go like wide and actually try and capture, you know, 40% of yeah. that market, I think it's a storytelling company. I think that there are people that can, yeah, then go the other way and they say, I want to build the company that allows anyone to be Michaela or anyone to build an avatar and have their identity online. I think that's different. I think that's like more of like a social product. And I think that's something that is really interesting. And uh, I've spent a lot of time trying to figure that out. Um, but it, it ultimately, like, if you're going to build the thing that you want other people to be their own Michaela, like they have to also be creative enough to be their own Michaela. And like, yeah. my gut feeling is most people aren't that creative. <laughs> yeah. So that's what Meerkat found out. Yeah. Right. Is that, or how, you can't create stars on yeah. live video. Not that people are the guy good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't know. I think like storytelling companies are not, Unlike most venture markets, are not duopolistic, yeah. um, and there's enough spend there. It's more like food, I guess. Yeah. Um, and so I think that there could be there could be many, um, but I think that there just aren't that many people doing unique things. And yeah. I think Michaela was like the first and probably one of the best implementations of it. Yeah. Um, but now, if anyone else wants to like fast follow, they have to do something actually unique with the medium. Um, right. James Cameron or Cameron James Wilson, I think his name is. Yeah. Uh, he does like the digitals, which is like a digital modeling agency, and he mm. created uh, like an alien model. Like that was really interesting because that like has all this commentary on, you know, what actually is beauty, what is like do models need to be human, and that takes it kind of a step further. A lot of things people are talking about with like what is wrong with a lot of that industry, yeah. like you know, false body images, stuff like that, and like that's the stuff I think is interesting. It's like you're playing with a medium that you can unbound like what happens in reality, and so like if you're going to do that, like do it in a way that makes it so that people feel or think or express themselves in a different way than they've ever been able to. Yeah. I saw a Gantz company that was trying to, I guess, create a social network around makeup, I guess, or, or, uh, or like try and close on. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You've been thinking a lot about, uh, identity, uh, fluidity, mm-hmm. um, avatars. Yeah. Where is your thinking taking you there? People need a way to express themselves on the internet in a different way. Uh, people increasingly, I think the generation 
right below me or the generation, uh, including us a little bit as millennials, um, increasingly don't necessarily associate themselves with like a single, I guess, cohort of people. And they, they like this idea of, you know, what, what I am is like what I want to be at that given time. And I think that our identities do fracture in some ways. I think that Reggie James at Eternal talks about this all the time. A lot of different people do, um, of, you know, we, we have all these different parts of ourselves that we want to express in some way. And it's uh, sometimes a limiting factor that we are just one person. Um, And so I think that there are a lot of interesting things at play, both on like the consumer product side and on like the digital expression side that say, you know, we can be, we are different people to, to, we are different selves to different people. Um, I think where it gets kind of hairy is this idea of, um, are you being like disingenuine then if you are not just like your one self? Um, and that's something I haven't totally reconciled yet, but I do think that like, it's increasingly difficult to ask someone to be, uh, to express themselves the same way yeah. as all mediums. Yeah. It, it, it would be interesting to go do a deep dive into the history of the identity as to when the one true self concept even came to be. Because yeah. I don't think we've always thought about ourselves yeah. in that capacity. I think once we started like documenting ourselves all over the place, it was like yeah. we just kind of became this entity, not like right. a person. And like yeah. people are multifaceted. Entities are stand for something. And like right. they are brands, right? They stand for a message or a brand message. Um, and I think that idea of like, we basically like, we all have our own personal brand, we all have our own personal entities. And like, we sadly at times, like think about ourselves that way. Yeah. And like, you even like run these weird, uh, AB tests. Or something. Yeah. Like AB tests. And also like, just like game theory things of like, yeah. Oh, like if I am this person today, like how is that going to impact me? And like, I think in a world where everything we do gets super magnified, uh, is super easy to like, frankly, like, like blow yourself up in some ways and you're feeling wrong. Um, and the world is, I think rightfully so in many instances, but not very forgiving anymore. Uh, it becomes really hard to just say like, I'm going to do me. And like, I I hope that people accept that. Right. Um, yeah, it's interesting. We're sort of wired to be in a, uh, you know, tribe of, uh, you know, 150 people or under or whatever it is. And if we were outcasted from that tribe that it had real ramp, you'd die basically. Whereas now, you know, you can be outcast from many tribes, um, and still be, uh, still actually you can have a huge, huge audience. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, we still have sort of that wire back then to really fear the, the outcasting. Um, yeah. I mean, the ramifications of being outcasted from certain tribes can destroy not yourself, but your brand. Yeah. Like, if your brand is basically like powered by your connections to four different tribes and one of them goes down, then the whole right. thing dies. Yeah. And it is interesting. Brand sort of implies sort of a consistency there where, I mean, going to yourself, but we are, we have so many selves, we, you know, it, it like gets simplified yeah. and boxed. How do you think it plays out with anonymity, pseudonymity, um, as it relates to social networks or. Yeah. I think that like someone has to, someone has to hold people accountable for like what they're doing. Yeah. Like I don't think anonymity on the internet as, like Reddit is probably the only example, and even Reddit, like there's some pretty dark corners of Reddit if yeah. you if you go there. Um, I, I think that there, if if we're gonna say like we're we want to be ourselves, we want to fracture ourselves and how we speak. Like I think that um, there has to be some layer at which people can be moderated and or punished for poor behavior on a platform. Right. Um, and I think that like that then comes down to how do you how much do you trust whoever is uh, permissioning those identities. Yeah. There's gonna be some people who are going to be like, no, I only want something that like I can be whatever I want. But like in your own way, like you can go start a Twitter account. No one will know it's you yeah. if you really want, but like you, you'll have your username and you can constantly change your username if you want. Um, but that's not really as interesting to me because that's not like, it's not like you're not building an identity. Yeah. You're building just like a quick thing. Um, and if you then decide like, I'm just going to build all these quick things to like create havoc or, and then change my name or change whatever, like, I don't really care about enabling that. I care yeah. about enabling people to like express themselves in ways that they one-to-one or like with their like, you know, single point of failure, which would be like yourself um, yeah. can't do. Yeah. Are you revealing your burner account yeah. live on this podcast? <laughs> no burner account, but uh, someday. You've been thinking about gender fluidity. Yeah. In what context have you been thinking about it and what are the implications there for what we do? Um, I think just thinking about it uh, more and more on like, if, if we look at like how, uh, how we, think about like what our gender means to us. Um, I think that that is increasingly like less, um, in some ways less meaningful in some ways more meaningful. Um, and, and I say that in the sense of like the idea of like, 
you know, as a man, the idea of like what makes a man a man is like, I think something that is deteriorating very quickly, especially with younger people. Um, I think that the idea of, you know, why we have to identify with this, this base layer of a thing that we're like born with or a thing that, uh, we, we want to identify as, um, just feels kind of antiquated. And it feels like because of all the different ways we can express ourselves now and the different, uh, social acceptance around like, just like being unique and different. I think that that's going to play out in a lot of different ways across like both consumer products and digital products. And I think that like you, it, it, it'll be, it'll be interesting to see how, uh, when that crosses the chasm, like into like mainstream mainstream. And I think that might just actually just be a function of like age, like as time goes on and as like millennials and, and, or, you know, uh, Gen Z grows up and becomes the majority of the population. Like that just might be it, but there also might just be some uh, other, kind of breaking point or convergence point. Um, I think similar to like, uh, other kind of, uh, I guess hot topics back then around even like back in the day, like race to, uh, like, I guess sadly more recently, like even homosexuality and this yeah. idea of like people kind of just as a sadly, not all the country, largely most of the country kind of reached a point where it was just like, yeah, like whatever, this isn't yeah. something that like is something we need to define anymore in, in such a rigid way or matters that much. Um, I, I think that that's, from an investor sense, I just think that, like that's something that will have some edges and some opportunity. I don't, I don't have a deep thesis on what those exactly are, but I'm waiting. I'm seeing. Yeah. And what about deep fakes? Where, where do you think opportunities there will be? Yeah. That's something I, it's funny like that. Uh, so in part of the Gantz thing, the other thing that you saw is like fake news type stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and that can be like fake people or it could be, you know, the original implementation of picks to picks, I think it was, which was a model which basically took a horse and then superimposed it to become a zebra. And like, I think that that concept, uh, I read about that concept in 2016 when people were kind of thinking about like, Oh my God, we need to figure out ways to like detect these things. It's going to be yeah. this existential problem. Uh, what I've increasingly like come around on, and I wrote that post basically because I wanted to find companies that were working on that problem. And I was like, yeah. I want to find a company. I didn't find one um, that I kind of got to a point of investing in, but I kind of have come around to it where it's, it's almost like the, that kind of old saying that is like yeah, a lie will make its way around the world before the truth is even like starting to be heard Yeah, that I don't know if like this, this idea of like, there's this existential threat that someone's going to put out a fake video and it's going to, we're going to need to like know immediately if it's real or not is going to matter. Um, and people like mutter the like, well, like something, something blockchain and like you can put it on the blockchain and print at the point people are going to believe that or not. Like Facebook can mark videos fake or not. And like, if there's a subset of people that like, they want to believe that. So they will. And I think that that, that has been proven across so many different things that like, if people want to believe this thing that is debatable, whether or not it's real, um, or even if it's proven, if it's real or not, like they will believe it, they will share it. That will be a thing. I think where it gets potentially like interesting is like, again, for like entertainment uses and like, how do we, uh, you know, this idea of like, how do we create digital selves of, of other people? Um, I think you can do that with media. I think there's like kind of an interesting, uh, idea of like, you know, being like your own, uh, there's a company Morphin that talks about this is like, you know, starring in your own gifts, starring in your own films, stuff like that. Um, and then there's even like a, a step further, which isn't entirely, um, deep fakes or GANs or anything like that. But this idea of like, what is like, how do you, if, if you could have a digital version of yourself, would you want that? Um, that's something I've, I've thought a lot about, like a, like a, a consultancy that one day basically says, you know, we're going to charge people tons of money to create just a digital version of themselves, whether that's a chatbot or like a thing that we can bake in their personality and people can interact with that person forever. And like, if you're someone who wants yourself as an advisor or yourself as to live on with your family when you're gone or something like that, like that's kind of interesting to me. So yeah, I don't know. I think, I think right now we're at like, peak deep fake on the like hype cycle yeah. scale. Um, and there probably will be some darker things that we see, but I've talked to these people who were doing consulting for large fortune 200 companies and they were trying to help them figure out how do you defend against like botnet attacks on your stock price. And they were thinking about starting a company in the space. And then what they quickly realized was that the thing, the way you defend against it is actually you just spin up your own botnets and create yeah. your own fake news. And they were like, that's super dark and that sucks. And I don't want to start a company that way. Yeah. And like, you know, there's all these things that like, I wish existed for, you know, that, that didn't have those type of ramifications, but like as an investor, sadly, sometimes I have to just be like pretty pragmatic about that stuff. Yeah. I think I definitely want my advisor board to be me, myself and I. Yeah. 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 Talk I, about like over bias. <laughs> yeah. Cause I, I don't follow any of my own advice, but yeah. other people I give, give good advice. Yeah. That's funny. 
So going back to category that was a bit off the, the, the beaten path relative to these other interests or took a different path to get there. Women's health. How did you, uh, you were, you were sort of gotten to it around fertility. How did you sort of develop a thesis and how has that evolved? Yeah. So I think a lot of it was again, like talking to people, reading a lot and increasingly reading like research, um, and figuring out like, okay, what are, there's like two, two, three kind of layers. And the first is like the like general healthcare service layer. And this is just how I think about it. I don't think, I think there's a lot of ways to look at this. Uh, and then there's like the, the second, which is like the like science layer of things. And we're not biotech investors. We do some biotech and some computational biology and uh, stuff like that. Um, but the original thesis was like for all economics and fertility clinics are quite good. Um, there's this overarching narrative that like, you know, women are delaying birth longer and they are, you know, going to, because of that, there's going to be like an increased need for egg freezing and IVF and that's going to like skyrocket. And so I had that very strong view and I basically said like, I want to find a company that makes this service better and does it in a way that um, potentially solves some of the financing issues, super expensive, um, potentially makes the invasive process of doing that just feel better, even though it's uh, it's a very like unquantifiable thing, but it's it can be kind of a shitty experience um, and a really tough experience for a lot of women. And it turns out that like, that is probably not in my mind, the, the necessarily like the only way to go about it. And so I wrote about, you know, kind of this, this post called what's next for eggs freezing. And again, like screaming to the internet, hoping people come back. And I met uh, Carolyn Witt who was starting a company called Tia and their overall view was women's healthcare is broken. Women have all these problems they want to talk about, um, things that they want solved, but um, there isn't like a single woman in any other woman's life that can answer all those questions and like help them through that journey. And like the women's health journey is like so dynamic, right? right? It's like you have all these different things you're thinking about from like the first time, I mean, from when you're growing up to like first time you get your period to, you know, when you become an adult and you like start thinking about, you know, adult things to like family planning to, you know, after that, when you go into menopause and like a ton of stuff in between. And when we go to the doctor, like a significantly higher rate than men and all that good stuff. Um, but they basically said, we want to create like a chatbot interface to allow women to talk to someone that can answer all their questions and kind of help route them through this, this kind of complex maze of women's health. What they really quickly learned to their credit was that like, despite being able to do that from a digital product, you're still dumped in like this terrible, uh, women's health system that exists today. Yeah. Like it doesn't really solve the like healthcare. It solves like the first mile, but the rest of it is the same. And so they uh, basically pivoted and said, we're going to open our own clinics. And that was in the roadmap, um, but they significantly uh, right. pushed that forward, <laughs> which is always like scary as an investor. But the, the way that they kind of explained a lot of that to me, and even from to the first investment, they were like, no, I get that you have this view on fertility, but this idea of like women are often like displaced with their healthcare provider because especially if they're moving around cities, if they have different jobs, they don't build a connection with the doctor until they enter that point of like, I want to have children. And then you build a connection and then you have that connection with the doctor sometimes for the rest of your life. Yeah. And that can happen at all ages, but um, increasingly, especially in cities is happening a little later. And so it's weird that like women can go like a decade without a relationship with a doctor. And it's something as like, you know, close to you as your health uh, it doesn't make any sense. And so they said, you know, if, if we can build a relationship with a, with patients um today what we can do is do things we can actually improve the overall women's healthcare experience but we also can wait for that overall market of like fertility uh services we'll call them to mature um because despite all of the like narrative around it and despite how like intuitive that sounds to us the numbers are actually not that large of like women that are freezing their eggs and going through that process. And then the statistical significance of data of women that unfather eggs and then have those children is like even less. Um, at times it's mind blowing the, the way people market those, those products and those numbers. And so uh, that was really interesting to me because you're basically unlike a lot of the stuff where that I'm investing in where people are like, yeah, this is like probably too early, but yeah. we're just going to have to wait for market mature. They basically are like, we're going to build a really meaningful connection and, you essentially can stretch out, like, for lack of a better word, like LTV of this woman and meaningfully change their lives and then build a bunch of services on top of that long term. And they also had a very differentiated view on healthcare. And so that, that then, like, you, you spend enough time with them and their team, you start learning about this process and you start learning more about, like, uh, what are all, like, the scientific things that are happening, whether that's, like, embryo screening at the pre-IVF stage or um, different types of ways in which people are dealing with menopause or, uh, you know, we're uh, investors in, in a company that is is thinking through how do you um, synthesize embryos. And, like, these these types of uh, science problems that kind of complete this this overall journey of, like, 
uh, we'll, we'll call it like, we, we broadly call it the future of family planning because I don't think it's only a women's health problem. Um, I think increasingly, actually, one of the things that, one of the things I like to do a lot is like track keywords. And one of the keywords I've tracked a lot recently is male fertility. Um, and that idea of like, actually, like, I think the stat is like 47% of infertile couples is because of the male. Um, mm-hmm. And that alone is like a, a really interesting thing. So we've talked about it as family planning broadly. And so we look at this all and just kind of say like, okay, what are the parts of the stack that like a company like Tia is going to be able to solve? And what are the parts of the stack that they're not? And what is the timeline in which the market makes sense and the science is going to be there? And like as venture investors that fortunately don't always have to be right uh, based on our model, um, what are the things that we think are like really meaningful to invest in today that could have like massive upside on the science side? Yeah. Um, so that's kind of how we've thought about things. And we're looking at a couple different things in the space. And I think that realistically across like the future of family planning, we'll probably have like anywhere from one to three more investments. Right. Uh, and make. what's your request for startups and family planning? Like, wh- wh- where are you looking? Yeah. Um, anything in like the embryo screening stage, the science yeah. related to that, um, anything in menopause, um, and then I think, uh, s- there's something still around like the, the male side of this. And there, there've been some male fertility startups that have uh, popped up. Um, but I don't have like a deep view on like what exactly that business looks like. Um, I also think that there are, there are some interesting things around like the, like gay couples that want to have children and like, how do you, how do you service that? Um, but I don't know, again, like I don't have a deep informed view of like, this is the exact type of business I want in there. But I know that that I think is going to continually be yeah. uh, an interesting kind of avenue to look. How do you make sense of sort of, you know, modern fertility server side or things like carrot on the enterprise mm-hmm. side or uh, a prelude? Yeah. Yeah. Um, How do you make sense of it? What's going on there? Yeah. I think like some of them, like prelude is like former elite operators, like taking yeah. almost a private equity approach. Yeah. Um, and that is like basically taking the thesis of like, Fertility clinics are like very good for wall economics yeah. and like that makes sense from like a cash flow perspective, um, with a nice kind of service layer. Um, I think like, you know, a company like Carrot, like really interesting product allows, uh, you know, women to be able to kind of afford services through their employers. And I don't know exactly if they've expanded out, out of that vision, but that initial premise is really, really interesting. Um, I think a lot of the kind of fintech focused products are really interesting, but as, uh, uh there are a few kind of like people kind of uh, moseying around like the self-insured space that scared us a little bit there yeah. of, you know, will they eventually move into this once the market gets big enough and profitable enough? And how does that erode the advantages of like a fintech play in the space? Yeah. Really early on, we met this company that it was kind of crazy. They wanted to do a lending product where you would actually be paying essentially like a monthly subscription to freeze your eggs, um, but which happens now, but at a much lower rate. Um, but they, uh, if you defaulted, they owned the egg. Wow. And there's oh my God. a very strong secondary market for uh, eggs. And we were just like, this is like not like this is nuts. Like we cannot yeah. invest in this company. They ended up changing the business model yeah. um, and have now since raised money from VCs and stuff. But everyone is thinking about like what is the interesting way in which we can drive down the costs. And like my initial hypothesis, which I actually don't have great data on if it's true, is like if you can some way aggregate, aggregate demand um, and then figure out like the storage component, can you at least lower the monthly cost? Yeah. Um, the issue is like the monthly cost isn't meaningful compared to like the upfront costs. Like if you have to get three egg withdrawals, that can cost you anywhere from 10 to 15 K each. And so it's like, you're sitting, you've spent 45 K and you you basically then are spending another thousand dollars a month or $500 a month over the next, let's call it eight years while you wait to see if you want to have children. And then, you know, I think the secondary thing that I have in this whole space is like people need to really be careful about how they market these products and like be mindful to like data wise. It's, I mean, I think it's, irresponsible to call these insurance policies because they're not insurance pays out all the time when you, when whatever you default on does or whatever yeah. happened does, this is not that. Um, and like, I think that there's the acquisition problem that of, of, you know, how do you, at what point do you kind of make sense to onboard a woman into this experience? I think is something that, that women need to be significantly more are armed with better data. And that's why I like modern fertility, because they take a very data driven approach to like, how do they help women make a decision? Yeah. Um, I think some people, take a view of like, how do we make it so that all women who are 25 and older and don't have kids yet are like nervous about this yeah. and then like get them into our pipeline. Yeah. Uh, how do you think about, uh, the approach Nerex is taking versus the approach, um, uh, Aptia has taken? Yeah. Uh, I don't know the Nerex business model super well anymore. Originally started with delivering birth control, yep. right? Yep. I think like, and now prep too, I think. Yeah. I think like makes a lot of sense, uh, for, 
very specific use cases that have massive like volume essentially. And so because of that, like as a business, that probably makes a lot of sense. And then you can build relationships with um, the people who are consistently ordering and all the things you can do with that relationship are pretty interesting. I think Tia is just fundamentally different business of like, we want to serve a broader type of healthcare. And then T has a very specific view on what they call cycle connected care and this idea of how do you rope uh, wellness into the overall healthcare journey and how yeah. does that specifically for women, um, you know, change some of the problems that they deal with. And so they, within their clinics, do like acupuncture and different things like that, that um, there's a lot of newer research now coming into that actually can meaningfully uh, impact kind of the outcomes. Yeah. It does seem like it's similar to FinTech in some way in that you, you try one application to just own the mm-hmm. you know, one use case to just own and then try to build everything on top of it. Yeah. So like these companies are all compete, competing in, in different ways. Yeah. And that's the thing that I'm, I'm always interested in as an investor of like, as these come, like I, I only really talk to the companies that I don't invest in, like at a seed. And so you hear like the first version and usually you have like the, like, the year, you get like the two year version, then you get like the year six through 10 version. And then as these companies start to raise more money and now as an investor in Tia, like you just hear a little less about like the longer term versions of these companies. And that is the thing I, I really wonder about some of the really narrow companies. I'm just like, where, like they have to be expanding. I know they're expanding somewhere, yeah. but like, where are they expanding? Like, what are they doing? Both because it's interesting. Also, like it has obviously competitive implications, but yeah, like it's going to be really interesting to see when we look up in five to seven years, I think, where we have like all these different companies that have run at this from like telehealth ways to moving uh, goods in the real world ways to like more specific healthcare ways to more broader healthcare ways. And like, where have they all expanded? How much have they all converged or not? Yep. Um, and I'd imagine like in some way, if you could hold an ETF of all those companies, like you probably have a pretty massive company somewhere in there. Yeah. Um, but with the like interesting dynamics of venture, you can't do that. You got to pick yeah, a horse. <laughs> totally. Uh, my guest today has been Mike Dempsey. Uh, Mike, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. I appreciate it. It's awesome. been a great episode. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst.